you said, like, uh, I, one thing I always want to talk about is geography of Taiwan. So ta- Taiwan has the central mountains, right? And then you have these lowland, uh, coastal lowland areas, which is like, uh, like fertile for, for rice agriculture. And, and so it, it, through most of the Qing rule, you know, the, the, the Chinese settlers from mainland, they mostly settle on the lowland areas. So, so like you say, most of the mountains are still remain in the in the hands of indigenous people, and the 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 imperial rule rarely extends to them, which would create a problem when Japan start to to expand because um oh when you know the, the Japan first is the status there's a, the the status of a kingdom of Ryukyu, which is north of Taiwan you know the, the Okinawa or most people know as Okinawa um, the Ryukyu island chain were kind of taken over by um, I believe the Satsuma clan uh, in the 1600s uh, because basically at then you know because Ryukyu has it's a major uh, producer of sugar and also more importantly as a trade hub that can trade directly with China but for hundreds of for like most of Qin dynasty Japan intentionally you know kind of let the Ryukyu kingdom keep kind of its ambiguous dual status as both vassals of China and Japan because then they could trade with China through through Ryukyu, through Okinawa. But after the Meiji Restoration in Japan, right, the decision was made to basically annex the Kingdom of Ryukyu to make uh, make it for so instead of Kingdom of Ryukyu, it became the Okinawa Prefecture, and it formally incorporated into Japan. And and there was in the eighteen seventies there was an incident where. So a bunch of uh, Ryokyuan sailors from Okinawa got shipwrecked off the coast of Taiwan on the east coast, right? And then they were killed uh, by the headhunting tribes of uh, indigenous Taiwanese. Um, People who got shipwrecked, de- depending on their luck, some of um yeah, there were cases of that happening. There were also cases of them being accepted into. Um, um, indigenous society and then living among them for a few years before they ended up one way or another going back yes. to Japan. Yes. But yeah. but what happened is the Japanese government used that as excuse to launch an expedition against Taiwan. And at the time, the Qing government itself was on very shaky legs. So we're, we're up moving up to 1870s, right? And, and oh, oh, I kind of skipped the part that were in the, so so basically Taiwan remained like a kind of prefecture of the Fujian part of the Fujian province um, uh, for a long time until um, until eight until 1880s because uh, there was a period of time in 18 um, uh, okay so that, I'm, I'm let's talk about 1870s first so so the Japanese send an expedition to Taiwan uh, ostensibly because Ryukyu sailors got killed by, by indigenous tribes. Um, and But really, they just want an excuse to annex Taiwan as well. And Qing government at the time was also on its last legs. Uh, there has been, you know, opium wars happened between 18... The first opium war happened in 1840s. The second opium war happened in 1860s. And in between, there was a massive 
massive Taiping Rebellion, which was supposedly the, the bloodiest civil war in the 19th century. You know, took hundreds of millions of lives. Um, and then... Speaking of rebellions, they also happen quite frequently. In Taiwan, Taiwan yes, yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, or a rebellion every three years and chaos every five years. Yes, so the Qing rule in Taiwan is actually quite tenuous because... Um, Yanlong Emperor, right? Like one of the supposedly the, the, the during the high Qin, the peak of Qin power. Yanlong Emperor had uh, had himself uh, celebrate ten great campaigns of Yanlong. Yanlong Sidazhen. The the one of the ten great campaign of Yanlong was was putting down a rebellion on Taiwan, <laughs> and because apparently at the time it was a big scale rebellion. Um, the, the the guy surname Lin, I forgot his full name, but he started a a, a, a whole island. And was it down to nobody in Taiwan. Yeah, he started a whole island island rebellion and pretty much took over the whole island. So the so the Qing had to launch a navy again from Fujian and basically put down that rebellion. And what year was that? Uh, this was during Qianlong's. Uh, this is it's part of Qianlong's uh, ten great campaigns of Qianlong. If you look, oh, okay. if you look on Wikipedia, you should be listed there. Because um, because I want to backtrack a little bit and say that like you know we we talked about earlier how um, the Qing were kind of confused as to what to do with Taiwan. Some people said keep it. Some people said don't. But then they were also really concerned that Taiwan will once again like um you know with the case of Zheng Chenggong be a be a um a base for anti Qing forces. Yes. Yeah. So then that's why they limited um, mainland Chinese immigration to Taiwan. And then um, for a while, it was like only men could go, only single men could go. And um, they weren't allowed to bring their families over. Because they, they didn't want the men, they didn't want the Chinese people to settle on the island. But what he had, and then kind of like um, the first generation of um of Chinese immigrants to 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 United States America. because yeah. because I right because the first generation of Chinese labor to United States were men who were there to build railroads and then mm-hmm. then it was like immigration was cut off through the Chinese Exclusion Act right you can't bring women in and you so you you created this large population of bachelors and oh, that well, Chinese took the Chinese Exclusion Act first for Taiwan. We invented it. Yeah, yeah. So, but, um, yeah, yeah. So, so that didn't stop illegal immigration to Taiwan, though. They still, people, they still figured out ways to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you know, Chandong had all these uh, prohibition. He also stopped uh, prohibited Han Chinese migration into Manchuria. Officially. Yeah. But you know, that's you know, illegal immigration still went down. You know, like during. During uh, the early chain, there were still a couple million people made it to Manchuria, despite the official ban. Um, um, but you know that this is part kind of like the the, the history of China, right? Like there's a there's a 上有对策，下有呃，哦不是呢，上有政策，下有对策。上有政策， there's a policy above and there's a there's a counter policy. Yeah, counter policy from from below. Or the other one is 山高皇帝远， the mountains are far, the emperor. The, the, the mountains are high, the emperor's far away. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, so often the, the facts on the ground are quite different from what's, uh, what's described in the imperial decree. So I'm, um, I'm also looking up the, the, the 10 great campaigns of Qianlong. Uh, so the, there's while a, you're doing that, I'll just kind of talk a little bit of what went on during the Qing dynasty. So, yeah, I mean, please. Um, after, after, um, 
I think after the establishment of Taiwan province or before, okay, I'm a little bit um a little bit muddy on this. I'm sorry, but um basically the most important Qing governor of Taiwan was um Liu Mingchuan. He mm-hmm. basically led a modernization campaign. He you know improved the roads and railways. He opened up the first post office, which is pretty um pretty interesting because um the post office of the of the Republic of China was a direct continuation of the Qing Dynasty um post system, and then that whole the whole ROC um postal system got relocated to Taiwan. So yeah, ah, so, but this is much later though, because this is almost yeah. like modern. Yeah. Well, no, yeah, the, no the, this the is Chinese. um this this is um right before um this is leading up to the time um Japan was Japan yes. was um Taiwan was ceded to Japan. Yes. Basically the, time- the Han Chinese population grew from like little like grew from like relatively little to more than 2 million by the time um but by 1811. Yes. And there were um, and, and- wait, let me look at the the numbers here. I took too many notes. I can't. I can't find things. Yeah. So while you're finding things, let me just go back to real quick to the to the Taiwan Rebellion during the uh, reign of Emperor Qianlong. So it's actually officially called the Wen Sijian or the Wen Rebellion. It occurred between 1787 and 1788. And so basically, the Qing governor of Taiwan at the time discovered uh, 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 the existence of the secret society, the anti-Qing secret society, Tian Di Hui, the Heaven and Earth Society. So uh, while he was uh, acting to suppress the secret society, the, the, the remaining members decided to launch a preemptive rebellion. And Lin Shuangwen declared himself king and, you know, quickly... The, the revolt attracted 50,000 people on Taiwan, and in less than a year, they occupied almost the entire part of southern Taiwan. So, so this is what when uh, Qin had to, you know, send her fleet from, um, from, from, from mainland again, you know, expedition to Taiwan to put it down. And they actually, they actually had to send, send 20,000 soldiers, which is almost like the force. Basically, Joshua force Wong, if you're listening to this, you ain't uh, shit. <laughs> yes, because the rebellion actually eventually uh, uh, had as many as three hundred thousand people took a part in the rebellion, and it, it took took over most of the Taiwan. And 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 this was seventeen eighties, right? So so like very uh, in you know another hundred years, um, you know the the, the Taiwan will um, we coming to the time oh. Back coming back to time to eighteen seventies. So right now we're basically talking about around this time there was a modernization effort happening both in China and in Japan. Right uh, in China as a result of the Taiping Rebellion and the Opium Wars, and in Japan as a result of uh, the the U.S. Uh, Admiral uh, Commodore Perry forcing Japan to open its uh, ports to trade. Uh, with his black ships in 1860s, I believe, or 1850s. And and then this two modernization efforts in China and Japan will come to a head eventually in the First Sino-Japanese War. But before that, immediately after the Japanese Meiji reform restoration, which Japan took 
uh, embark on this like full scale westernization program, they decided, you know, the way to beat the Western power is to become imperialist powers themselves. So first they did is, you know, annex Okinawa. Uh, and then, then Taiwan became another target. They they, they use the excuse of Ryokin sailors uh, shipwreck and being killed on Taiwan to launch expedition. And at this time, China was still recovering from the Taiping Rebellion. And at the time, it was also recovering from this huge Northwest Muslim Rebellion in the Northwest China. And, and, and China at the time was debating what to do about Xinjiang, because Xinjiang in the 18 uh, between 1864 and 1870s was being uh, com- like the Qing imperial authority completely collapsed and there was a central asian adventurer yakub who you know led his force from fergana bali in what would be today uzbekistan uh, into xinjiang and he set himself as a, as a new king basically uh, a, a, a new emir over most of Xinjiang and uh, and 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 the, the Qing government was considering to after they quelled finally quelled the 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 great Muslim rebellion in northwest China in in parts of Gansu and Sanxi they decided to send in Zhuo Zongtang to move into Xinjiang to 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 to, to reclaim it and and that's so so at this juncture you know and also uh, Russia took this opportunity to occupy part of northern Xinjiang around the Yili Valley. Uh, so at this juncture, you know, Qing didn't want it to deal with another front with Japan in southeast. And and it's the Qing official kind of tried to use an excuse to brush it off, saying, oh, um, you, you know, like this, uh, this, there, the, you know, the, the people who committed the murder of the Ryokin sailors, they're, they're these ta- Taiwanese aborigines. We actually have no control over them. Right, and so it's not really our responsibility. But in a way, by saying that, Qing basically kind of gives the Japanese further excuse that they don't control the parts of Taiwan where the Aborigines reside, and 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 in addition, at kind of accept the Japanese annexation of of Ryukyu Kingdom by by saying that the Japan has a right to. You know, to intercede on behalf of the on behalf of Okinawa, and and so Japan sending a, a expedition regardless, uh, but eventually, you know, like like the Americans got involved, and Japan was persuaded to withdraw, but Qing has to pay them, you know, the the the, the expedition cost. But that was kind of the first taste of Taiwan for Japan, and then in in eighteen. And then in eighteen, so in eighteen eighty four, China then got involved into another war with another European power. This was a Sino-French war over basically status of Vietnam because uh, you know Vietnam, France, France was pushing to basically colonize full of Vietnam, and and Vietnam as a vassal state of of Qing, the Vietnamese emperor basically sent uh, um, asked for help from the Qing imperial court as a, as a vassal of Qing, and then Qing sent sending force into Vietnam to fight the fight the French. And and as that part as part of the Sino French War, Taiwan got involved too because 
the, the French expanded the war to the southeast Chinese coast, and they send a navy to blockade Taiwan, and they 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 send an invasion force to land on Penhu Island, also land on Taiwan, and and as a result of this, after the conclusion of and one of the reasons, you know, the 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 Qing finally concluded peace with with France and and despite a victory over the French forces on the China, China Chinese Vietnamese border, still uh, acknowledge, uh, you know, basically the French rule over Vietnam is because this French blockade of Taiwan. The Qing weighed the two. And you feel okay. Taiwan is important, more important than the vassal state of, of Vietnam, and and and, and we got to keep Taiwan. And as a result of First Sino-French War, Taiwan was made into a full province, like a full. Uh, before it was a prefecture of Fujian, and in eighteen, I believe eighteen eighty seven, right. So right a couple years after the conclusion of Sino-French War. Taiwan was made into a full province of China, but that didn't last long. That didn't last long because now we're running up against the first Sino-Japanese War, which broke out in eighteen ninety-four over status of Korea, because Japan first expanded south to annex Okinawa uh, Ryukyu Islands, Okinawa, aka Okinawa, and this then, is very important because Korea has played a pivotal role in the um the status of Taiwan with the rest of China, and that's this won't be the first time it happens again, as we can see. We'll get to that later. Yes, because then um, Japan wants to this next target is Korea, but Korea again, like Vietnam, was a vassal of China. So you know, then the then the Qing Imperial Corps sends in troops into Korea to respond to the Japanese threat, and then the Sino-Japanese War explode uh, in on Korean Peninsula, and then but the, the Qing army was decisively defeated on land and on sea. You know the. the the, the Qing Navy, the Beiyang fleet was almost wiped out. And right after that, uh, Japan first moved to annex Diaoyu Islands. The Diaoyu Islands are set set of islands that's sitting between the Okinawa island chain and Taiwan. Uh, it's kind of interesting, though. About the, um, the, you know what's interesting about the Diaoyu Islands? Yeah. Diaoyu's. Yeah, because, because um, they claim Japan still claims that it belongs to Japan. But when Taiwan was a colony of Japan, they were administered as part of Taiwan. Yes, because it's it's closest to Taiwan, and 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 Diaoyu Islands was at the time, uh, you know, on the old maps of Japan, it was actually marked as not part of Kingdom of Okinawa uh, Ryukyu. And in fact, in in um. Uh, even after Japan annexed Kingdom of Ryukyu in 1870s, they still did not mark the um, mark the uh, Diaoyu Islands as theirs. They waited until the Qing uh, Navy, the Beiyang Fleet, was wiped out in the Sino-Japanese War um, in 1894. Then they move in to claim those islands and. They call them the Senkaku Islands. Yes, and the Senkaku Islands means is actually a direct translation of its English name, Pinnacle Islands, into Japanese. 
because Sengaku means pinnacle. <laughs> it's 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 just a direct translation of、uh, the English name Pinnacle Islands because they didn't want to use、uh, the old name Diaoyu Islands to remind of its Chinese origin. And、mm-hmm. and then、um, because the、uh, the as a as a as a as a rapper as As basically war booty, Japan demanded not only the you know the、uh, Korea's official independence from China, but essentially became a, a colony of Japan. But also they demanded the southern half of、uh, Manchuria, the the Liaodong Peninsula,、um, as as payment, and which Qin agreed to. But because Russia wants whole of Manchuria to itself, it couldn't have. Had led Japan to have a foothold in southern Manchuria, so Russia, Tsarist Russia, together with、uh, France and Germany, they send a fleet to to Japan, basically at gunpoint, force Japan to resign their claim on on southern Manchuria, give it back to China. Of course, China had to pay another huge amount of silver to Japan for that for that honor to redeem back、uh, Niaodong Peninsula. But in return, Qin were to give Taiwan as kind of uh, kind of a compensation uh, 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 compensation to Japan. So 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 then then、uh, Taiwan used to become a Japanese colony. But when the news first traveled to Taiwan that this happened, that you know, there, people were very indignant that they didn't want to become part of Japan. So what the locals did. At the time, is because the Qing government signed this treaty,、uh, you know, to 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 cede the land to Japan. So they decided, okay, we don't want to become part of Japan. We don't. We actually don't want to be cut off from China. What we're gonna do is we're just gonna declare independence. We'll call it the Republic of Taiwan. So this is a real republic of Taiwan. Yeah. No, they called it the Democratic Republic of.、Uh... I think it's translated most in the West to Republic of Formosa, but in Chinese it's some、um, Taiwan Minzuguo. Yes, yes. So the Democratic、uh, Republic of Taiwan is the Chinese、yes. name for it. Yes.、Yeah, so basically, it's um, it's a、uh, it's like the 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 local officials they they made the the Qing governor the first president, <laughs> and and the 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 whole point of setting up the de- de- Declaration of Independence is they didn't want to be part of Japan. Um, and, it was and, a pro-Chinese government. Yes, exactly. And so, so his first first president was actually the previous Qing governor, and and the、uh, and there was a、uh, also the 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 head of the Black Flag Army.、Uh, shit, what what's what's his name? I can't remember now.、Um, uh, was he was so this this、uh, the Black Flag Army used to be. A、uh, uh, kind of remnant of the Taiping Rebellion, and they got pushed out of China into Vietnam after the failure of、uh, Taiping Rebellion, and they kind of established themselves as a big power base in in kind of the border region between Vietnam, Laos, and Thailand. And then, then when the French move in to fully colonize Japan, they become a major、uh, opposition force to to the French colonial force, and they. So kind of they kind of fought as、uh, as part of proxy of Qing, but after the the Chi- after the Sino-French、uh, treaty was inc- concluded, 
uh, you know, Qin, they didn't want this black flag army sitting on its border. So they uh, sent the black flag army to Taiwan. Um, and it's just right around like 10 years later, of course, the, the Sino-Japanese war broke out. And the, the black flag army, um, they also organized some local militias to resist the Japanese invasion. In fact, there's a movie, there's a Hakka movie called uh, 1894 um, uh, that that describe kind of describe this uh, invasion of Taiwan by the by the Japanese army. Um, mm-hmm. It's uh, this is not really mentioned nowadays in Taiwan because of um, the political agenda of um, certain certain groups of people, unfortunately. Oh, of course, of course. And uh, but I I I wanted to. Uh, uh, talk about this move. Uh, bring bring up this movie. One is because I think this is one of the first uh, Hakka language movie to come out of out of Taiwan, and um, it's about a very specific period of Taiwan history. It's about the kind of the the Taiwanese resistance to the the Japanese colonial rule as it first was imposed. Um, I'm trying to remember. I think the Chinese name is 1890, or maybe 1895, because 1895 is when Japanese moved in. Let me yeah. see. And another movie I want to mention that I know you know about is um, uh, Warriors of the Rainbow or Seriogbale. Yes, yes. So, so I it want portrays, to. It's not about this necessarily, but it does portray um, the the fall of the um, Taiwanese Republic. Yes, in 1895. The first, like first. In like the first five minutes or ten minutes, so so it's a little bit longer in the director's cut. Oh yes, yes. So in in eight, so eighteen ninety five, uh, or in English name, it's called Blue Braves: The Legend of Formosa. Eighteen ninety five. It's a it's a Hakka language uh, film out of Taiwan about based on the Japanese invasion of Taiwan in eighteen ninety five. Because what happened is uh, Imperial Qing. Dynasty imperial government have given up. They 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 were defeated, and they would agree to give Taiwan to Japan. But the 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 the, the, the people, the, the Chinese uh, society on Taiwan did not want to be Wang Guonu, right? They did not want to be be subjugated to Japan. So they declare independence, founding the so-called the Republic of of Taiwan, and then. Um, the Jap- then Japan sent the army to Taiwan to formally bring the island under its control. And it lasted were- five months. I'm sorry. The um the independent republic lasted five months. Yes, yes. So those are the five months of basically armed resistance against against the Japanese imperial forces, and you know which was a very formidable force at the time you know you, you easily defeated the chinese land force and now you come up kind of this kind of ragtag force of local militias and and um yeah yeah so people for the people for a more visual aid people can check out 1895 uh, or um the blue or the english name uh Blue Braves, The Legend of Formosa, 1895, but also uh, the more famous movie, uh, The Warrior of Siddiq Ballet, The Warrior of Rainbow. We'll put, I'll put the links in the show notes so people can can look up. And, watch the two-part director's cut if you watch um, Siddiq Ballet on Warriors of the Rainbow. Yeah, Siddiq Ballet is a great movie. I, I highly, highly recommend it. Except it's, the ending was really lame. Yeah, yeah. So, so 1894, 
five, uh, you know, the, the legend of Formosa, that's more about the Hakka resistance uh, of Japanese invasion. But the, the, the Siddic Ballet, Warrior of the Rainbow, is, ta- is talking about the indigenous, the real indigenous people of Taiwan, who are these, uh, you know, Austro nation speaking uh, uh, Aborigines who rose up against the brutal Japanese colonial rule uh, in 19- 1930s. 30s, yes, in 1930s. That's it's act. Both are based on historical events. Um, Siddic Bali is a great movie. I, I highly recommend. Um, and we have actually gone over to. That's my puppy. So sorry, my they they fight all the time. They like to add a little color. We have actually gone to two hour mark. Do, do would you like to continue this? Our my idea is um we can just keep on recording until we're tired and then we can just cut the episode down to like I know you usually split your episodes into two parts with this maybe two or even three parts would be mm-hmm. would make it work especially now with everyone's in quarantine longer episodes are good oh oh you know what that's a great idea okay so if you want to continue I, I'm more than happy to um so we let yeah me, let's do it yeah let me, okay let me just check uh so we are now. Which bring us to 1895, right? The Japanese army has rode in, and and they kind of. Uh, um, I'm just tra- checking your notes to make sure you have. Once again, uh, there's a debate on how to deal with the people in Taiwan. Yes, there were two yes. camps in Japan. Yes. Uh, did you want to backtrack a little bit to talk about the separate policies for the Han and the Aborigines uh, under? under um chain or do you consider we we pretty much cover that already um i think um if we really want to get into it 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 would be better for maybe another episode because i need to read up more on that because today because with today i prepare for the political development of taiwan and unfortunately the aboriginal people have been so subjugated that to really talk about the the main trends of political um development of like mainstream taiwan we would have to leave that as a separate episode yeah. in my opinion you, yeah i mean i think one, one yes one of the great thing uh also important part about um Siddic ballet the warrior of the rainbow is it tells a often not told stories of the taiwanese aborigines they're kind of been almost erased uh from the debate about the taiwan relation with uh, you know mainland china and they're tokenized and, too. Yes, yes, and and because the the the, <coughs> the Taiwanese Aborigines, they were the original, you know, people of the land, and and a lot of time in English media when they use the word native Taiwanese, they're actually not talking about Taiwanese Aborigines, the true Taiwanese. They're talking about you know the so-called native Taiwanese. They're talking about the the descendants of everyone we talk about up to now. Yeah. <laughs> yes. They're talking the Chinese about- descendants of everyone we talked to up till now. So the various forms of Im- ways of immigration, like the Zheng Chenggong and his people, and like the migrant workers, and the, pretty much they were they were pretty much settler colonists. Yes. Yes. In fact, a lot of uh, there are a lot of uh, uh, people trying to make the analogy of Taiwan to certain colonies as as uh, as in the argument that you know yes the Taiwan should have a right to independence just like the 13 colonies you know had a right to assert independence from Britain uh, in fact they they are letting on a little bit more 
true analogy than they realize because yes, Taiwan is a settler society. It's it's built upon these uh, you know settlers from from a from the Chinese mainland who kind of uh, in their process of settling dispossess the the the, the aborigine population, the, the the natives of the land. And the funniest part is they justify their argument by saying that both the ROC government and the PRC government are um, the colonizers, while they themselves are the true colonizers yes. of Taiwan. Yes, yes. <laughs> They're the first, first um, one of the first waves. Um, and and uh, and this, this, because as we mentioned earlier, even during the Qing Dynasty rule over Taiwan, there's a large part of Taiwan which is mountainous that was kind of outside of the imperial rule. So the Qing government official wasn't exactly lying when he says, "Oh, we're not responsible for this real Qing." Kill, sailors being killed by headhunters because we have no control over the headhunters. <laughs> but it's a true statement. And but when the Jap when the Japanese imperialists came to Taiwan, they are intent to bring their imperial rule to everyone on Taiwan. And this is the important point. There up until then, there wasn't exactly a um like a distinct Taiwanese identity even among any of the residents in Taiwan because there wasn't like um for example. If you lived in the coastal cities of Taiwan, chances are your community had more contact with mainland China, with the people they traded with, than people, let's say, like north or south of you on Taiwan. Oh, yes, yes. And and a lot of the identity back then was more based on, you know, families, on clans. Yeah, clans. So, yeah. so, so or, or place of origin. So, you know, like we kind of briefly talked about earlier, you know, there's association among people from Zhuang, uh, from Zhangzhou and people from Quanzhou, right? The two major port cities in Fujian from where people departed. And then and there's... It's pretty a- interesting because um, the, the dial- they both speak Minan dialects, but they're a little bit different. Like I've been to um I've been to Quanzhou. I haven't been to Zhangzhou, but I've heard um but I've heard people from Zhangzhou speak in Xiamen. And my ancestors came from Zhangzhou. But what's interesting is like the dialect in um in Xiamen, the dialect in Taiwan is can be categorized as like a blend between Zhangzhou speech and Quanzhou speech with a little gradient depending on where you go. Like if you go to Taipei, it leans more towards um, Quanzhou. If you go to um, Tainan, it leans more towards um, Zhangzhou. And and you know also of course there's Hakas from 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 Eastern Guangdong and yeah and the, 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 the inter- like Pingdong and um, Miaoli. Yeah, and the interesting thing about the Hakas is the. The you know they were the first um, to rebel against the Qin rule in Taiwan, but then after Qin suppressed them, you know then the Qin used them the, the Hakka militias to put down the other you know other sub ethnic groups <laughs> rebellions, and then you know because then then Qin kind of reincorporated the Hakka militias into its own kind of the the military system, and that's why during 1895 in um, Japanese invasion of Taiwan. Hakka militia play a huge role in the local resistance because they're, they're the ones with with arms. <laughs> they're, they're armed. And, and the stereotype is they're very, um, how do you say, like they're, they're really good at unifying with one another and forming like um, a unified force. That's the stereotype. Yes, yes. And um, so this brings up 
us up to the Japanese uh, colonization. Um, do you yes. want to kind of talk about the kind of the the, the Japanese policies, especially the the, the Japanese policy on Taiwan? Yeah, so at first they were wondering like how they would deal with Taiwanese people. There was the argument that um these people were not um civilized enough to become Japanese, so we should have developed like a whole other set of laws just for them, which is kind of like how um the European colonists administered the New World and Africa and India and um you know Indonesia and all of their all of their colonies. So then yeah. that was they actually kind of went that route for the beginning for the first few decades of Japanese rule, but then um, things things started changing, and they moved towards a more of a assimilationist type um, type ordeal. But and then, like especially during wartime, during World War Two, that's when they really stepped it up, and which made like the assimilation policy of 1937 seem like they still like um, they still acknowledged the fact that Taiwanese people were like the Han Chinese people were Chinese and whatever, but um it's the different policies also were um how what role taiwan served in the empire at first it was a traditional colony where it's like it provided agricultural stuff to japan like sugar rice and that sort of you know that type but then um whereas industry was for the japanese mainland you, you know and you know it's if you if you study Marx and Lenin, you kind of understand like the development of capitalism and then how imperialism is the highest form of highest form of um capitalism and stuff and b- because Japan went on the um are you still there? I'm here okay yeah you you just kind of your your sound kind of dropped, but basically as um Japan went went expansionist for even more it needed greater industry so that's when um the industrialization of taiwan really took off and um I like to point out that you know if you discount okinawa or, or aka kingdom of ryokyo taiwan is actually japan's first overseas colony yes so, so that you know japan had a learning curve at first it was the first it, big colony yeah it was very um at first japan first phase it was very brutal um, like we talk about, you know, in reference in those two movies, the 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 crushing the indigenous uh, the local resistance on Taiwan that lasted to from eighteen ninety five to about nineteen um, tens, and and after that, you know, the the Japanese new colonial governor decided to rule with a little softer hand. Um, so that's when they they started to. Uh, trade trade the Japanese uh, as as Japanese subject, not not as Japanese, but as ja- uh, subjects of Japanese Empire, not not just uh, these kind of um, conquer people, right? Purely as conquer people, but and they really developed Taiwan to um, it was really it became pretty developed under Japanese rule. For example, it had like one of the most comprehensive censuses in all of Asia. Like um, starting from 1905, they started collecting data every five years and the population doubled between 1905 to 1945 from 3 million to 6 million and Japan also for the first time um, enacted compulsory education in Taiwan and school became compulsory for children between ages 8 to 14 and um, 
which put Taiwan's attendance rate in school to the second highest in Asia, um, with the first being um, Japan proper. Yeah, and um, speaking of communism, uh, initially when the you know when the communist parties were been kind of sprouting up. The Jap, the Taiwanese Communist Party were actually placed under the supervision of the Japanese Communist Party because at the time Taiwan was still a Japanese colony. So even though you know there's maybe more cultural ties Taiwan had with the Chinese mainland, but initially they the, the branch of Taiwanese Communist Party was um, considered you know part of the Japanese Communist Party. Yeah, they got they got crushed by the Japanese authorities though eventually. Oh, of course. I, I mean, like the, the the Japanese rule in Taiwan, they were very quick and brutal in suppressing the dissent. Uh, but after a while, they decided, you know, maybe allow a little bit of democracy and let them join in, like in some government. Yes, yes. I wouldn't call it democracy, but they they did. Uh, well, that's what they tried to. That's why they tried to portray it as. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, because I mean, Taiwan. Uh, people of on Taiwan, they're still second-class citizens of the Japanese yeah. Empire. You know, the Japanese settlers on Taiwan, they are still the first, you know, the conquering mm-hmm. race. They're still the, the, the first-class citizens. Um, they just decide to, you know, give more rights to the to the locals as kind of a compensation price. And oh, Speaking of this, it was just a funny story. When I was in high school, I took Japanese. And... Um, one of my Japanese teachers was like, oh yeah, my grandfather, he was like an older man. He was like in his like middle ages and he was like, he was mid-age and he was like, yeah, my grandfather um actually worked in Taiwan and he, oh, he had so many great memories. I'm just thinking, yeah, he was probably a bastard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, I was like, cause there was, um, there was, I remember also meeting a Taiwanese woman who, um, this was in United States, and she was talking about her father. Um, so her father was a, a kind of employee as a medical professional, maybe even a doctor in the Japanese army during World War II mm-hmm. on mainland China. So she, he was attached to a Japanese Imperial Army unit, you know, and he was talking about, oh, yeah, he met and fall in love with Japanese nurse, but they they were separated by war. You know, it's a great love story, and no, I I, I didn't say anything, but in my mind, I just couldn't get over the fact that her dad, yeah, her dad worked for the Japanese Imperial Army in China. You know, like freaking. So, um, oh, speaking of this, um, the um, of like um. Being second-class citizens, they weren't allowed to be to serve in the Japanese army until 1937. And at first, in 1937, they were allowed to enlist for support duty. So I guess like your um, your acquaintance's father, like being a like a nurse or doctor or whatever. And then um, as things became more desperate, what they allowed Taiwanese people to do was broaden. So then, in 1942, they allowed Taiwanese people to volunteer, and then in 1944, that's when there was a full-on draft because they were starting. They were they were getting fucked at the end of the war, and um, that's when my my grandmother's brother actually got drafted, and he was sent to Hainan where he died. Yeah, and there was it was all across all people in Taiwan, not just uh, yeah. among the Chinese settler population, but also a yeah. population in the mountains. 
they they were rounded up and pressed yeah. into the Japanese Imperial Army, basically left to die on the islands in the Pacific campaign. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and this uh, this actually I so I read um nineteen. 19- 49 big river uh uh there's also another book called um by um uh, but 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 what's the english translation of uh i don't know is there is there an english translation of that book uh i don't know but it's a it's a it's a it's kind of semi-famous in the chinese uh circles anyway um, you and, should uh, you should check out um Liao's criticism. I mean, I don't agree with Liao on everything, but he's he's pretty good at gathering um historical information and just like shitting on people. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, it's uh it's, the English translation is a big river, big sea, untold stories of 1949. Oh, uh, they're so, pretty told. It's it's a collect basically a collection of stories written by the Taiwanese author uh Long Yintai and. Um, in in two thousand oh nine, I don't know if there's an English translation. I read in Chinese, obviously. And what I actually find, int- I mean, her her political view is shit. But the, I agree. What, but the 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 there's some interesting factoids to be picked out from the book. For one is you know he talked about her father, you know, being uh, from rural area in I believe uh, uh, Hunan, and like there was famine you know before 1940 like every few years there's there's famine in 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 hunan and and this is way before the you know the communists took over and also another fact is about the about the aborigine the, the people in taiwan getting drafted in the army so basically uh they you know the, the japanese empire were getting on this last leg so everybody was getting drafted into the imperial army to die for you know for the glory of the emperor and then just a few years later you know 19 after 1945 the the kmt uh, regime Chiang kai regime come to taiwan to 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 um to 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 take over and then the chinese civil war breaks out so then then there's another recruitment drive to to recruit people in taiwan to join the KMT army to fight on the Chinese mainland, and and maybe we'll we'll get into it when we talk when we get to that part. But there was an interesting story of two um aborigines, a Taiwan aborigines who whose brothers, who older brothers, got drafted into the Japanese Imperial Army and died on on one of the Pacific Islands, and then themselves got drafted by the KMT uh in. I think 1946, 1947, and they got they they got sent to uh, Sandong, uh, which at the time was a big um, communist base. They got sent with a, a KMT army to Sandong to to try to wipe out the communist base there, and they they were being defeated by the communists, and they were captured. And so they joined the PLA, and, and they they and. Um, nice. Yes, and they actually stay end up staying on the mainland for most of their lives. They only came back to Taiwan in like nineteen eighties, probably. Yeah, after the martial law was lifted in Taiwan to finally meet their family, so they, they had, you know, they had mainland spouses and mainland children. And but they they were still like when they were inter. I saw an interview on Taiwanese TV of these two 
two guys, and they were still singing like the the PLA songs. It was great. It's actually, <laughs> why I met this person from Machindao who said that she had relatives in Taiwan. That, that oh, could, yeah, could could be something related. Yeah, yeah, and. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll get to the Chinese civil part first. Let's well, get, I want to talk about the, um, sorry, you're still going to talk about Japan or do you want to talk about the transfer? No, no, no. Let's, let's keep on talking about Japan if you have more to talk about. Okay, yeah, so basically, um, kind of Japan transformed, helped transform Taiwan from, I don't, I don't want to say help, but you know what I mean, like, uh, because yeah. they had their own reasons, but because of their incentives, they had the incentive to transform Taiwan from, like, a more agrarian society to a more modern society, a more modernized society, yes. and um, one of the first things that Japan did was um, kind of deal with the problem of opium addiction mm. in Taiwan, which was just like the rest of China was a pretty big deal. They, uh, they found out before... Um, they found out before woke lords in the West that um, total prohibition doesn't work. Yeah. So yeah. what they did was they didn't completely ban it, but then they monopolized the opium trade. So then, and then they would only sell to people with um, government issue permits. Now, some people say that this was just so that the state could monopolize the drug trade, which is kind of true. But regardless, opium addiction dropped significantly, and it might have to have to do might have had to do with um increases in the standard of living over time like after the um the first chaotic decades were over and then they also and at the turn of the century they ended foot binding it was completely banned in 1915 and then they also didn't they also um targeted the um you know the cues that they had um the manchurian cues that chinese people grew like you know the shaved head with the ponytail on the back there was no formal law banning them, but it was strongly discouraged. And also, after the fall of the Qing Empire in nineteen in late nineteen eleven, they just kind of fell out of pro- um, popularity as well. And um, yeah, they. And I want to talk about towards the final years. Um, I just want to interject for a second, talking about yeah. Japan ending opium addiction in Taiwan. So you know. The great anti-communist uh, author Frank Dick, Dictor, uh, who like a Dutch historian who's quote unquote specialized on modern China, he wrote on like Mao's Great Famine and you know win some awards for it. And he actually wrote a book um, on opium, uh, the ex- exotic uh, commodity. Uh, he, he, the nar- narcotic culture a history of drugs in china where he said opium was not that bad for china you know it was exaggerated it was, it's, this is this is the kind of people who are kind of being fettered around in the western media it's like i guess um i, I guess the opioid crisis in america is not that bad either yeah this, this is the kind of people who's been fettered around uh with awards and and you know being celebrated in western media as like you know china experts you know like because opium addiction in china was bad i mean like it, it was so bad that even the japanese imperial government banned the opium trade on in its own colony taiwan right because at the time they're actually tra- trading taiwan as its um old provinces versus uh you know, at the time in Manchuria, in, in China itself, during World War II, Japan was actually actively running 
you know, opium trade. You, 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 you have this like huge, massive opium network. Which here. is why I buy the I buy the theory that um Japan enacted the way it, the policy worked in Taiwan was to make it so that there were less addicts within the colony, but then they could also monopolize the trade. Ah, ah, yes, yes. I never thought about that, but that makes sense. Um, yeah. Okay, uh, are you going to keep talking about the yeah. Japanese policies? So the, and I talked about the assimilation. So, I mean, that kind of just happened with education and culture, you know. So, um, but then in 1937, that's when they really ramped things up. Now, from 1937 to 1945, they had what was called the um, the Kominka movement or the the... The, the Japanization movement, which um, they encouraged people to become formal subjects of the emperor. Now, this kind of coincided with their war efforts because they really needed to instill a Japanese identity in the Taiwanese because what were they trying to do? They were trying to invade China. Now, if these people had a cultural affinity to China, it's kind of like if we got drafted by the U.S. military to go fight Chinese people, we'd probably defect. <laughs> Right. Anyway, so there's a um, whereas Gordon Chang, Gordon Chang, because he's like all assimilated as if he wouldn't defect, he would just be like, "Oh, I'm here to spread freedom and democracy." And <laughs> so there, 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 actually the uh, the Chinese reading of this um, of these the, the Chinese characters, uh, Huang Minghua Yundong. Yeah, Huang Minghua Yundong. This people Chinese speaking speakers will be more familiar with that. Um, yeah. yeah, basically brainwashing the the Taiwanese into. Um, sacrificing their lives for the great, greater uh, glory of the emperor, yeah. um, and um, they they encourage people to. And but then, like, it was a movement. But then, only two percent of the population formally became Huangmin, and there was like a process. You had to meet certain um, criteria, like your family had to be what they called them Guoyu Jiating, or people who speak the national language, which was Japanese. Yeah, and then they had to observe Japanese customs. They had to convert to Shintoism and stuff. And then um, once you became a formal Huangmin or, um, or, or, or subject of the emperor, then um, your status would rise above a typical Taiwanese, but you were still not quite Japanese. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. But then like, um, and then um, during that time, people were just encouraged to speak Japanese, wear Japanese clothing, you know. They have to adopt Japanese names, right? Um, it, yes. Yeah, yeah, and then, but then, like, they still had, like, Chinese names, like, you know, obviously, but then, like, real Huangmin, they just kind of, um, it, it, it was even more formalized, and um, not with, with real Huangmin, it wasn't just the, a matter of adopting a Japanese name, you had to go through a little ceremony where you go and, like, you, you, then you renounce your Chinese ancestors and like, you know, like I think even like tombstones and stuff like that. And then you traded them for a new set of Japanese ancestors. Wow. Wait, yeah. did, did Li Denghui's family, uh, you know, the yes. former. Yes. Really? So his family yes. became officially became Huangmin, a subject of the emperor. I'm 90% certain. Okay. okay. He certainly acts that. He certainly acts that way still. Oh, definitely. Oh, definitely. I mean, this guy just is just Judas amazing. among Judases. Yeah, I mean, like before, I thought, oh, this must be all you know, just communist propaganda against uh, trying to smear his name, Li Denghui's name, and or, or maybe like uh, his KMT enemies trying to smear his name and. And once I start to read what he actually says, I was like, "Oh my God, this guy's for real." <laughs> he really, he really, uh, you know, treasure his his uh, 
his his uh, memories as a subject of the, the the emperor of the Japanese emperor. Oh my yeah. god! When I was when yeah. I was like two years old, um, my dad really hated Li Donghui, and he bought a dog and named him Li Donghui. But then I was scared of dogs, so then my mom made him give it back. <laughs> oh, take back Li Donghui, please. You know. Yeah, but before, before, before like two days of my life, I had a dog named Li Donghui. <laughs> Oh, oh no. great! So, yeah. Uh, so yeah. So, and this a lot of it is done through education, right? Yes, a lot of the yes. brainwashing. Yeah. Yes. Like for example, my grandfather. He what he um. It's kind of weird because my grandfather, my maternal grandfather's mother, came from a like a Qing a, a, um a Qing court family, like from the imperial Qing court. So yeah, they had yeah, that. like officials. Yeah, 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 yeah. They were they, they were that. Whereas, um, my grand, but then like by the time my grand my grandfather's generation, my grandfather was born in um nineteen nineteen thirty. He was born in nineteen thirty, and he pretty much mm-hmm. grew up um playing with Japanese kids and speaking like learning Japanese. He was, but because um after after um the end of the war when he became an adult he did business in japan and japanese people couldn't tell that he was not japanese whereas like the average taiwanese when they spoke japanese they could still kind of tell you know yeah but anyways it it was that going on and it was it's really the generation that like spent their formative years in the 30s and 40s that really became like um just more assimilated, truly assimilated more so than other than their previous generations into Japanese culture. Now, um, and then we can get into during the final years of World War II, there was um, U.S. bombings on Japan. I mean, uh, and Taiwan. Yes, yes, because there were actually, um, yeah. There, I so at the time, um, U.S. actually um, build. Uh, air bases. So one of the goal of the Pacific campaign to leapfrog is to take over this, these islands so they can build uh, air bases to creep closer and closer to bomb mainland Japan. But uh, in uh, also in parallel to that effort, you know the the American Air Force were actually building air bases in China, um, like this mostly southwest China, the, the part that's unoccupied by Japan, then use those parts to, you know, bomb Japanese occupied territory yes. like Which is in why China and in certain independence yeah. certain Taiwanese separatists use that to say that hey Chinese people were responsible for bombing us during um World War Two. Which is true because there were there were a Republic of China pilots who, you know, joined that, but then it was it was because they were a United States ally. It was like, it's like you're, which is stupid because like, then you, they don't apply the same standards to Americans. Yeah. And they, they don't, they don't think about the, uh, or, or the, 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 the Taiwanese who serve in the, the, the Japanese Imperial Army who got sent over to China. And there were a few of them too. Yeah. yeah. There's, um, that's yeah. why there's, um, I want to get into that later about, um, historical revisionism and why, um, and how that plays a role in today's politics. Now, um, a lot of those air raid campaigns, I just want to share stories. Um, it was my grandmother was in, um, she was born in 1932. So she was around, um, she was in her early teens when that happened and her education was interrupted because there was like, there were like, there was like a whole year or two where she didn't really go to school. Like all they did was just 
um, prepare for aerial attacks, and she actually did go through a few of them. Like she would tell me like where like um where certain like when we were walking around Tainan, her my mom's hometown, she would tell like oh which which certain areas were were bombed and like how um if like so and so someone she knew or some family member had gone to meet a certain friend at a certain day, they would have died and. Yeah, I mean, like this, people, like you know, these are really just the tragedy of yeah. the war, which you know Japan initiated, and and but like the way that some of these people, separatists uh, in Taiwan, you politicize it, it's like, it's like basically they are playing to their own base, and, and like this, like if people from China mainland to hear this will be like, what? <laughs> Cause like, for, you know, my, my side of family, for example, my mother's side of family, they're from Chongqing, right? Which was a mm-hmm. wartime capital of China was one of the most heavily bombed city during, during the World war two by the, by the, by the Japanese uh, air force. And, and like, like for people in, in China to hear that would be like, what <laughs> what <laughs> and, and, and like because in, in a way it also shows yeah. kind of the disconnect right you have the, to the, you the, have to the kmt the is responsible for some of this though because of their great mishandling of um great mishandling of the um the return of taiwan to china and part of that was also because yeah. of the chinese civil yes. war their most of their attention was directed to the ongoing civil war Yes, yes, we we definitely will 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 get there and talk about that. Oh, we are okay. Yes, so yeah, so I mean, what as a result, of course, that oh, see, Japan was great to us because they did things like build the first university in Taiwan, which is which today is the um National Taiwan University. It used to be, I think, the Imperial University of Taiwan or Taipei. It's the um yeah, Taita. Oh. Oh, and also, the, also the Tai Taiwanese uh, presidential palace was a former uh, the the Japanese yes. colonial governor's yes. uh, office, right? Wasn't it? Yeah. But by the way, you guys, yeah. you guys in the mainland don't call it the presidential office because I looked it up on um, Baidu maps. It, it was called um, what was it called? It was called um, Taiwan Administrative It's the. That's what it says in Baidu maps. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Yeah. Um, so, anyway, yeah. How do you anyway, so, translate that into English? It's the um, it's kind of like the the office of the leader of the Taiwan administration. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah, to call yeah, it the presidential yeah. office would to be would be to recognize the sovereignty of the ROC government I, on Taiwan. I like I like I like Taiwan regime better, but anyway, anyway, yeah. that's just me. So. Um, the so that brings up to 1945 when the Empire of Japan was decisively defeated. Yes, and then as part of the deal, Japan had to give up all its acquired colonies, and that included Taiwan. And then the you know by then, Japan had been ruling Taiwan since what 1890? for fifty years. Yeah, exactly 50 years. And he actually ruled Taiwan even longer than he ruled Korea. And then at this point, you know, the um, uh, we have uh, the KMT. So the KMT 
which is uh, at the time was the ruling faction in China. Like maybe Kai not Shen in reality said, for much of China, they were losing a lot of base. But under international law, they were still the legitimate government of China, unquestionable at right. that time. It, right, right, right. At the time, I mean, at the time of 1945, at the time of Japanese surrender, actually the the control of Chiang Kai-shek's uh, regime was basically just the southwest China. Yeah. Like, just a China, like the Sichuan Basin, pretty much. Part of Guizhou, not even Yunnan, because Yunnan was under the Yunnanese warlords, um, Longyun. And then, uh, actually, uh, the Chiang Kai-shek, in his very sneaky way, sent Longyun, uh, the Yunnanese warlord army, into Vietnam to accept the Japanese surrender there. And while the Yunnanese army was gone to Vietnam, he he staged a coup in Yunnan and 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 uh, <laughs> took over and sent his own people to take over Yunnan. So so like so you know like at the time of 1945, the the, the Xinan Sanson, the Yunnan, uh, Sichuan Yunnan Guizhou, pretty much what. Chiang Kai-shek had yeah. control directly. Anyways, I really want and, to place a lot of focus on this part because this is, um, if you want to listen to the side of the story of um, the separatists, it's their interpretation of this that ma- that makes it their um, legal justification for their views. Now, I'm not like, if they were truly for independent like Taiwanese state, like especially like a socialist Taiwanese state, that's whatever. But like, um, I think there's room for discussion. But um, the fact that... The fact of the matter is the Taiwanese independence movement as it exists today serves none other than imperialist interests. And I think if you're serving imperialist interests, that's not true independence. Yep. I mean, I remember, um, so I, I attended a pilot, the, the funeral of, um, of a Chinese-American pilot who, who was born in U.S., but he... Like many Chinese Americans at the time, he went over to he went back to China during World War II during the Japanese invasion. Mm-hmm. He joined the Guangdong uh, Air Force. Uh, you know, at the time the Guangdong was co- controlled by was the Chinese warlord, right? Uh, no, no, no. Hui Fei Fudui is American, is, is a kind of American mercenary force, oh, yeah, right? Yeah. But he joined the Guangdong Air Force, like even earlier, like in the 1930s, uh-huh. uh, he joined like Guangdong out of patriotism. Air Force. Yeah, because, you know, he, like most Chinese immigrants in the U.S., he was Cantonese-speaking. Uh, and then, uh, you know, but Chiang Kai-shek never trusted the Guangdong Air Force because Guangdong uh, Army was like a warlord army, not directly under Chiang Kai-shek's control. And Chiang Kai-shek only trusted his own people, right? So, so they, the Guangdong Air Force was kind of sent to the front line as kind of yeah. cannon fodder during World War II, and, and many of his comrades died. And then so during the war, a civil Chinese civil war broke out after Japanese surrender. Uh, like him and his buddies just decided to defect to the communists. So, so they, they flew their... Because they're like, oh, we're not being appreciated by Chiang Kai-shek. You know, like they... Uh, so they just flew over. First the ended with Chiang Kai-shek. Mao is my best friend now. Yeah, well, he, he joined. Uh, they joined the Communist Air Force. Uh, you know, he became the first generation of the PLA uh, yes. Air Force, and then he he you know in the eighties, I think he went came back to the United States to retire, or whatever. And and anyway, I attended his funeral in Rosemead, California. And and there, there was a one of his friend was um, 
from Taiwan, you know, the, who work on the who was from the KMT, the, his old buddy in the KMT Air Force from back in the days, but but relocated to Taiwan, and he was telling us stories like, yeah, like um, when we work in the uh, in the Taiwan um, air like the military airports, the Americans they when they when they do the perform um, maintenance right on the on their aircraft, they wouldn't even let us to get close right he said like what the fuck you know it feels like really feels like we are we are like this is a fucking colony here it's like it the Taiwan is not really really it's all yeah because because like he said like the americans who are supposedly you know the taiwanese allies who, who are who are on the island to defend the island against you know communism whatever and but they act like the overlords like you know he's i work with them on the on, on, on the airfield they, they they wouldn't even let us like get, get getting close to their planes like, this is a good segue like to what i'm about to get into That's after i introduce like the um the legal basis of um taiwan's retrocession to china because um the U.S. was also confused as to what to how to deal with Chiang Kai-shek because they didn't really want him to be their junior partner anymore because um, they wanted somebody who was more obedient yes. and also because Chiang Kai-shek didn't manage to keep yes. mainland China so he was they were he was he already fell out of favor. Yeah, well, American policy on Chiang Kai-shek kind of flip flop a lot because initially. They kind yeah. of overthrew all their support to him, and then, uh, you know, during the Chinese, like initially at the time of the Japanese surrender, it was you know the American warship that sent Chiang Kai-shek's force to Taiwan, and it's American planes that airlifted Chiang Kai-shek's force from southwest to China to all the other occupied Chinese cities to accept Japanese surrender, and it was a Jap, it was an American. Again, American warship war and American planes that airlifted and the ship, the the the, the, Chai, the Chiang Kai-shek's elite force from southwest China all the way to Manchuria to you know to 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 take over the, the Manchurian city from the Soviets over there, and so so you know America. Americans were deeply involved in the early part of the the, the Chinese Civil War, uh, but it's only like. When they realize, okay, you know, Chiang Kai, Chiang Kai She is losing, right? Then, then they're like, okay, well, maybe it's time to cut our losses, and and then the attitude changed. But now, but that in American political discourse, it turns into, oh, you know, who lost China is because we didn't, uh, we didn't, you know, give Han, Chiang Kai She our hundred percent support. That's why we lost China. It's, this kind of view was especially prop, uh, propped up by Henry Luce, who owns the Times. That's such a that's that's so that's so bullshit. Yes, but but Hen, but you know like uh, um, Henry Luz, who is kind of like this. Uh, I don't know, like he has like Christian missionary ties with China, and was very close with the Chiang Kai She family, and he was like a hundred percent, you know, Chiang Kai She, you know, uh, Chiang Kai She fan. You know, he he, but he wielded a lot of power. In media, especially American media, and also among like conservative uh, congressmen in United States, I mean it's the same story today, really. But like, yes, yeah. but he's used his media empire to kind of wage this uh, "Who Lost China" campaign in in U.S., mm-hmm. kind of shifting the blame to like uh, all these people in the U.S. State Department who are prone, who are kind of start to leaning toward to. 
uh, have approached some kind of uh, extend the olive branch to to Mao's new government, right? And that yeah. that's really important about what I, of what yes. I'm about to go get ahead. Into. Go ahead, perfect. Yeah, go go for it. Um, so you need to backtrack a little bit. So um, basically, when um, Taiwan was returned to China, you can already start seeing how um, a certain segment of America already had a um, conspiracy to separate. To create a situation where there was either two Chinas or there was a separate Taiwanese state from China. Now, um, what happened was um, when World War II was about to end, there was something called there was something called the um, the Cairo Communique. It was not a formal treaty, but regardless, it becomes formalized because um, it is quoted in the Instrument of Surrender which um, followed the terms of the Potsdam, Potsdam Declaration. And the eighth, the, um, the eighth article of the Potsdam Declaration states that the terms of the Cairo Declaration shall be carried out. And then I'm going to give you another direct quote from the Cairo Communique, which is, all the territories Japan has stolen from the Chinese, such as Manchuria, Formosa, which is on um, Taiwan, the Pescadores, which is on um, Penghu, shall be restored to the Republic of China. Right now, um, there was another thing. Um, Japan didn't formally surrender until to didn't formally surrender to um China until the um Treaty of San Francisco was signed in 1952, which was um concluded between Japan and the Allied powers without China in 1951. Oh, oh, the treaty it was signed in 1951. It didn't come into force until 1952. Now. China was left excluded because there was a lot of debate onto which Chinese government to um to allow because um the People's Republic of China had already been established by that time and it had it had effective control over mainland China whereas the United States because of its geopolitical interests did not want to recognize it and they still continue to recognize the Republic of China government on Taiwan as the sole legitimate government of China. So the 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 um the compromise was that China would be left out. But then under US pressure, Japan would sign a separate treaty with Chiang Kai-shek with the Chiang Kai-shek regime on April 28, 1952, which is the same day that the Treaty of San Francisco comes into force. So as you can see, it's it's basically like um, a loophole just to say that oh, well Japan China wasn't at the negotiating table, but then they still Close the loophole by, I mean, they still um, put it into effect by having them sign a separate treaty that um, that pretty much came into effect at the same time. And Article Four of the um, the Taipei, the Treaty of Taipei, which is the one that they signed with Chiang Kai Shek, was it is recognized that all treaties, conventions, and agreements concluded before December 9th, nineteen forty one, between China and Japan have become null and void as a consequence of the war. Which means that the Treaty of Shimonoseki, which was signed in 19, 1895, the one that um, ceded Taiwan to Japan, under international law, has become null and void. Now, what the um, and also Article Three says the disposition of the property of Japan and its nationals in Taiwan and Penghu and their claims, including debts against the authority of the Republic of China in Taiwan and Penghu and the residents thereof. 
and the disposition in Japan of properties such as authorities, residents, and their claims, including debts against Japan, its nationals, shall be the subject of special arrangements between the government of the Republic of China and the government of Japan. And also the Treaty of Taipei was abrogated unilaterally by the Japanese government when, um, as a result of the Japan-China Joint Communique, which was um, signed when they when they um, cut ties with the um, so-called ROC government and established relations with the um, PRC government. And um, under that, but a, a direct quote from that communique says, the government of the People's Republic of China reiterates that Taiwan is an inalienable part of the territory of the People's Republic of China. And the government of Japan fully understands and respects the stand of the government of the People's Republic of China and it firmly maintains its stand under Article 8 of the Pots- Potsdam Proclamation. Now, um, so this kind of breaks apart the um the legal basis of the separatists who say that the the status of Taiwan is undetermined because China was not um was not at the negotiating table during the Treaty of San Francisco yeah. and that um the the Cairo communique was also not valid because there were no signatures it was just like um it was a declaration it wasn't like formal but then which is was okay whatever just let's assume it's true because there were no signatures, but it was directly quoted in the Potsdam Declaration, which was, which was um the art in the Articles of Surrender by Japan, which was recognized internationally. So, I mean, I mean, U.S. policy toward Chiang Kai-shek has gone through many um you know iterations. I mean, initially, before the ending of World War Two. You know, Roosevelt had envisioned China as kind of a junior partner to kind of U.S. hegemony in East Asia. Kind of like, a, a, you know, Chiang Kai-shek's friendly government will be the U.S. junior partner in basically holding East Asia against the Soviet. That was that was a plan. And what happened then was that, you know, KMT government through its sheer incompetence, and particularly during the 1945, the last Japanese push to link its uh, Asian mainland during the Ichigo campaign, you know, this is, Japanese empire was already on its last leg in 1945. And, and, and they were able to kind of brush aside the, the, the Chiang Kai-shek's army and capture a huge swath of, of China, I mean, they actually successfully linked up the occupied northern China all the way to Guang, Guangzhou and all the way to Vietnam. To I mean, they didn't end up to utilize like the the real networks they linked up due to bombing and and other stuff. But the initial objective was accomplished, and there's a, such. I mean, the in Chinese is called uh, I think Yu Guixiang Da Bai, which literally means that the great collapse right of the three provinces and and this late in the game you know u.s was totally disappointed in the abilities of Chiang kai-shek so what they had to do was they <clears throat> during the negotiation at a yalta conference with stalin they tried to bring in soviet my boy yeah they're trying to bring in the soviet union into the war against japan to end it earlier um, and you return, uh, you know, there are several conditions, which is uh, recognize uh, the, the formal independence of Outer Mongolia 
and also kind of recognize the the, the, the interest of a Soviet Union, special interest of Soviet Union in Manchuria. And and with that, you know, you know, Soviet. So there, you can see that there is some sort of contradiction between China and the Soviet Union. Even though Mao and Stalin were allied, there was still um, there there were still areas of yeah, which the U.S. is acutely aware of these yeah. things. So this is really and, important. And, and what happened was that uh, then after the then then quickly the the, the Chiang Kai Shek defeat on the Chinese mainland means you know U.S. loss is client like a major client. So U.S. then turned attention toward Japan. So so instead of Chiang Kai Shek's China, Japan became U.S.'s junior partner in Northeast Asia. Became like this. Yeah. This that's that's how that's led up to the situation today. You know, you know defeated yeah. Japan then actually by twists and turns of history became like the the junior partner of us to enforce the us hegemony in 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 asia and so that's how we got to you know the situation the ambiguous situation with taiwan but time rolling to 1945 the boatloads of you know kmt soldiers landed in taiwan this is the first time in chinese troops land in taiwan in 50 years uh, and this is very significant in Taiwan because although there's a there's always been a significant presence of Han Chinese, they were largely from um, the Guangdong and um, Fujian provinces, mostly Fujian province. Now this is the first time that there were that many, like main like Han Chinese people from so many other provinces. Yes, yes, it greatly in- in- introduced the um it it greatly diversified Taiwan's population and its cuisine. For example, like my, my grandmother can't eat spicy foods because like spicy foods wasn't weren't introduced to Taiwan until about around this time, which was she was already like, you know, was past her formative around her formative years. But so it wasn't something she grew up with as a kid, whereas and, and, like, nowadays with all the people from from your area and um, from because on the so happens that the Air Force Academy of the ROC was in Chengdu and they eat a lot of spicy food and then. The Air Force Academy got relocated to um Gangsan and um around Kaohsiung. And then there's a lot of um people from that from Chengdu relocated in southern Taiwan that just introduced a lot of their spicy cuisines. So, oh yeah, I forgot. Th- things like this. Because, uh, this is what Oh, I wanna settle this. I wanna settle the debate. There's a debate on whether um Neuroman is um Sichuanese or if it's Taiwanese. Okay. <laughs> and here's the story. You had like the Air Force Academy, you had all those Chengdu people. They went to Taiwan and then they wanted, you know, you go anywhere. You want to eat food from your home. So then they they created the um, Gangsan Doubanjiang, which is Doubanjiang, but made with materials that they could find in the, their area. And then from that, they created the um, the, the their style of um, the beef noodle soup, which is now called like um, Taiwanese beef noodle soup abroad. But in Taiwan, it's called like um, Sichuan beef noodle soup. Ah, that totally makes sense because... You know, <clears throat> many of my listeners already know I'm I'm from Chongqing, right? Which used to be part of Sichuan. Well, basically the same cultural area. And you know, when I moved to United States, you know, I would go to these malls, you know, Taiwanese uh, shopping malls, that would serve Taiwanese beef noodle soup. I always thinking, what's so special about this? What? 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 I mean, like, <laughs> this is the same beef noodle. I mean, like back home, we also have beef noodle soup. What's why? Why is this? What makes this Taiwanese beef noodle soup? But what? What you just 
thank you for sharing that that historical context. This is perfect. You know, we, we're so um, we're talking about the conspiracy. Um, we I'm I'm gonna let you talk about that more, but I want to talk about the conspiracy of um the U.S. like on how to deal with Chiang Kai Shek. Yes, yes. So, um, 19, 1949, February, U.S. diplomat Livingston T. Merchant was sent by um is his name pronounced Atchison? Yes. Yeah, yeah. He was sent by Atchison to Taiwan on a field mission to see if um a new autonomous a government autonomous from China could be set up. So he met with um chairman of the Taiwan provincial government um Chen Cheng and made these offers. If Chen Cheng separated the provincial government from the national government and then cut off ties, cut off communications with the communists. I mean, I'm not he's not implying that there there were ties to begin with, but like he if if he was willing to isolate the communists with the US is basically what he meant. The US will send 25 million US dollars of aid annually and then um as a formality the allied forces will occupy Taiwan. And um a meeting on the transfer of power to the new government will take place. And after this meeting this meeting takes place, the US will send its navy and air force to the Taiwan Strait to um maintain order, prevent hostilities, prevent attack. And then at this time because they knew that Chiang Kai-shek was pretty much fucked if he wanted to go to Taiwan, he would have to go as a political refugee, which means he wouldn't have power anymore. But Merchant made the offer to the wrong person because um, Chen Cheng was loyal to um, Chiang Kai-shek. And um, although he was also an anti-communist, both of them were Chinese nationalists who refused to separate Taiwan from the mainland. So this is... um, This is not U.S.'s only attempt either because they also try, try to prop up uh, Sun Lizen. So Sun Lizen is a, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is a KMT general who led the, chi- chi- uh, the Chinese expedition force into Burma uh, during World War II because at the time, you know, the, the only way overland supply route into China was through Burma, through the back door into southwest China. And the, the Japanese... They were also trap lords. They were... I'm sorry? Trap lords. They were what? Trap lords, like the big drug dealers, yes. like in the Golden Triangle. Yes, in Burma. Yes. Yeah, that's how they made money. They they worked with the CIA and like the um the opium went on um Pan Am flights. Yes, yes, that. So that uh, we probably should devote a separate. Uh, the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's let's not talk about yeah, that. that that's basically time. the remnant of KMT army in northern Burma that ended up, uh, you know, basically creating the gold, the so-called Golden Triangle, the the, the infamous uh, drug-growing, uh, smuggling region that supplied, you know, op- opiates, uh, heroin to much of the world uh, with CIA help. And and uh, but back in. Uh, so Sun Nizan led the Chinese expedition force into northern Burma during World War II to basically try to rescue the British uh, British army getting trapped by the Japanese invasion force. And then he later was pushed um, to to India to north to northeast India, where the the, the Chinese expedition force was reorganized and trained and equipped by Americans. So Sunnizen had a very close tie with Americans. And the, the later that his army, the first uh, first corps, uh, the, the new first corps became like the most elite force in KMT. And also Americans would uh, ship 
airlift them to Manchuria to basically uh, fight the Chinese civil war against the communists. But Sun Nizam, because he's close tied with Americans, there was an attempt to install him as like a new military leader in Taiwan. And of course, Chiang Kai-shek through his spy network got, got wind of this and he placed Sun Nizam under house arrest. Uh, so there's, there's kind of like a like a trying relationship between the Chiang Kai-shek regime and the U.S. And there was also a time where, um, I think it was in the 60s, that basically suspicious of U.S. trying to do another coup against him, um, Chiang Kai-shek basically instigated another riot, uh, anti-American riot in Taipei. Um, but but it, 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 it kind of sparked off by... An uh, incident that really shows kind of the colonial nature of Taiwan. Uh, yeah, there was this guy killed by the U.S. Yes, military. yes, because supposedly, supposedly, according to the U.S. official version, it was um, uh, it was a, 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 a American officer who claimed that you know there was a peeping tom uh, outside watching his wife shower, and and you know he went out and fired pistols and of course he killed somebody and he turned and that somebody it turns out um interestingly was none other than like he was part of the Chiang Kai-shek sky uh spy network like like kind of ha- pretty high in the in the KMT intelligence uh, uh <laughs> in- both stories both stories could be yes true. yes I mean and 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 then after that uh you know there was a huge anti-american riot basically broke out in, in Taiwan um, because, you know, of course, like the American trying to claim immunity and, and claim that you know, he was self-defense, right, you know, after shooting this guy. Uh, but but that, that was just kind of the general atmosphere in Taiwan at the time. Like at the time, even in the 1960s, Americans not necessarily seen as, you know, the, the, the defenders of democracy or the great liberator. <laughs> they, they were seeing kind of as the overbearing colonial overlords they are. Um, and because yes. at the time, you know, after 1945, not only U.S. had a military presence there, um, I believe U.S. had stationed nuclear weapon in Taiwan for a time. I have to double check on that. Um, um, they did in South Korea, so it wouldn't surprise me if they did it. Yeah, in- yeah, like they they had to withdraw basically after 1972 after Nixon met met uh, Mao in China. So so that before you know the military military presence in Taiwan was quite heavy, um, and, especially during the Vietnam War. Yes, yes, and and that also you know the other uh, kind of the the. the you know, South Korea also get pulled in. So all these kind of the American client state gets pulled in in, in the U.S. adventure in, in, in East Asia. But uh, what I want to get back to is, you know, there was a scene uh, described by one of the pro-independence Taiwan activists. You talk about the scene in 1945 when he sees the first boatloads of uh, KMT soldiers landing in Taiwan. And he said, oh, yeah, everyone at the time was very excited. You know, everyone was very excited to finally, you know, uh, ending the status of the Japanese colony and became, you know, welcoming back to the be welcome back to the motherland. But then he himself was very disappointed to see these uh, very shabbily dressed uh, 
KMT soldiers who dressed like beggars. You know, he felt like that was a sharp contrast between like smartly dressed, you know, Japanese Imperial Army soldiers. And then he started having questions like, who are these people coming over to take us over? Right? Like these people who speak us, speak strange languages and, 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 and who are, you know, worse off than we are, you know, because in, in Taiwan, at the time, it was still materially, it was better off than much of uh, mainland China, which was ravaged by, by World War II. Um, you know, Taiwan, despite its bombings, it still had, you know, decent infrastructure, education system, et cetera, et cetera. And I want to contrast this story with um, another another guy after you're done. Go ahead. There is a um, guy in Taiwan. He's um. There was a Taiwanese communist named... Uh, Fuck, what's her name? Uh, oh, Xie Xue Hong. Ah, yes. Right? Yes. Yeah. Well, he, this wasn't her story, but he was, all, he was connected with her um, during the, um, the 228 massacre incident, which we will get to later. But he was um, the son of a, uh, of a landowner. I'm not sure if he was like a wealthy landlord family, but he was, he was not like a lower peasant. And he realized that, um, the relationship between um, Taiwanese people and their Japanese um, um, colonial overlords kind of were kind of similar to um, the relationship between the the big landlords and the poor peasants or the, and the middle peasants in the countryside of Taiwan. Because ah. one, like he realized that he never accomplished anything in his life, but uh, he was a kid. But then, like the lower peasants would treat him as if, like you know, he were almost like their elder or something like that sort of respect. And he saw that as very unjust. And then um, as, as he grew up, he saw more of the, um, he, he was more, he grew more um, dissatisfied with Japanese rule, especially after he had gotten into a fight with some Japanese kid at his school. They told him he beat, he beat the kid up. And afterwards he was um, surrounded and beaten because they were saying that, okay, it's okay to get into a fight with a Japanese but it's not okay t- to win. Wow. So then, yeah. And, but then he also grew very disappointed with the KMT. But unlike your story where he was like, okay, well, then we want Japan. He realized that he he he, he sa- said that dignity was also very important. He was a, he was a Chinese, na- he became a Chinese nationalist. But um, not, not like KMT nationalist, but you know, you know what I mean. So then he said, I no longer want the white motherland. I want the red motherland. And by motherland, which means um, China. I no longer, white China, like the, you know, white army, white reaction. He doesn't want the reactionary. He saw, he does, he's not, he, he he is on the side with the communists. And uh, up until the Korean war, it was pretty much, everyone thought that, okay, Chiang Kai-shek's pretty much fucked. And, um, People kind of felt, kind of knew that Mao was going to go at any time. And that was the plan. Mao did plan on liberating Taiwan in 1950. But there is a saying in um, Chinese, uh, 计划赶不上变化. How, do you, how would he translate uh, that? The, the plans can catch up with the changes, I guess. Um, yeah, yeah. But before we get into the Korean War, I think um, now well, that we've before we, before this, we so we'll, jump into Korean War, we have to talk about 228. I mean, we're actually just <laughs> building into the big climax of 
the big Taiwanese revolt against the KMT rule right after uh, after the post-war handover. Can we stop, uh, make this a stopping point because it's been three hours. I I really need to grab something to eat. And um, uh, is it possible to continue this at another time? Because I feel this is a good spot stopping point because right now it's going to be the big, we're leading to that that big blow up, right? The, The 228. Yes, and and this is uh in our when we return, we're gonna discuss the big uh, Taiwanese resistance against uh, a revolt against the KMT rule in Taiwan, the two two eight incident, which have reverberation to this day in the political scene on Taiwan, but often it's get its history is getting distorted. Uh, and mythologized, and and we are here to debunk the myth and to lay out the facts. And also, I guess on a, on an ending note, I just want everybody to remember: keep in mind the different ways of Han immigration in Taiwan. Keep in mind the different um the different um ethnic groups in Taiwan, and also keep in mind that. Taiwan had been colonized by Japan, so you had Han Chinese with a different mentality than the new set of Han Chinese who were entering. Yes, very different. And then they are divided into two camps. One, the first, if you were a Han Chinese who was already in Taiwan prior to um, 1945, you were called a Bensengren, which is um, native prop, it means of this prop, somebody of this province. People afterwards were called Waisengren, which is. Um, extra extra provincial people now keep this in mind because um the kmt was because um pretty much the kmt came from the mainland afterwards and then as a result of um i guess identity reductionism all waisengren were pretty much just attributed with the new government so then there is a huge this ties into all of the contradictions that happen in taiwan in addition to all the class contradictions you have like these these um pro Japanese intellectuals. You had like these um these huge landowners who they pretty much just sided with whoever was in power. And then you had like you know the the poor peasants, the working yeah. class, and, and stuff. So all of this is very important also, to what's about to come up in the next. Yes, episode. and I will we I will just go very briefly. Uh, probably also helps to discuss the KMT rule on mainland China. We, I mean, they pretty much imported all their problems into Taiwan and and that's where we get this big blow up in 228 in the- I guess that's where we'll that, that's where we'll start off um next time with a brief introduction of um the final years of the KMT on mainland China and its implications on yes, Taiwan yes perfect well thank you very much uh Mr. Shang Yu this has been three hour tour and uh we're, we're looking forward to to the next time yeah, yeah. Thanks a lot. Um, I, I'll be talking more next time because as we get into more um, modern history and I can share um some I guess anecdotes and whatnot, it should make a hopefully it makes an interesting episode. But yeah, thanks a lot for like filling in a, a lot about the early history. My plan today was was just to like go over the um the early history, just like okay, bam, bam, bam. This happened. This happened. This happened. Okay, now this happens. But I think this will set the stage even better, especially now during the um during the um the COVID-19, everybody's staying at home with yeah. 
less things, less less better things to do than they would have had. Yes, so, yes. So what, what I, I imagine more listeners to uh, enjoy your self quarantine than listen to Steel and uh, uh, Silk and Steel podcast. Uh, thank. You. Go out less. Listen to Silk and Steel yes. more. <laughs> listen, listen to my music. Listen to my music too. I would tell you guys to follow me on Twitter, but Twitter doesn't like me. Where anymore, can people so. find you? Um, Instagram. Okay, and your Instagram handle. But my Facebook is wait, sorry, my Instagram is Comrade Xiangyi. C O M R A D E X I A N G Y U. Okay, and is it the same on the Instagram or Facebook? No, no, I don't have a Twitter. No, no, no. Your Facebook and Instagram is the same handle. Uh, yeah, my Facebook, my Facebook page is in Chinese. But you can still you can you can still follow it and use Google Translate. I, I guess I'll talk less about this sort of stuff. I, I I tread really carefully because my on my Facebook, my views are still the same, but because of certain sensitive topics, I word things in a certain way so as not to like. You know what I mean? Yeah, I have to I have to I have to keep I have to keep some of the separatists happy. I can't piss all of them <laughs> off at the same time. You can't piss. Off I, I piss I, I piss off different segments of them yeah. like separately yeah. I, I divide and yeah yeah i understand well thank you very much uh we look forward to next time all right yeah thanks for having me on okay bye-bye